From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for September 14th. It's a Monday. It is U.S. Open Week in September. There's a fall feel in the air here in Jersey today, and we welcome in from Golf News Net, Ryan Ballingy, who we're going to be hearing a lot from this fall. Ryan, are you ready to essentially become my every other week co-host, it feels like, the way this schedule is going? <laughs> well, usually it's our downtime of year, but we, uh, we have three months of downtime, so I guess now is the busy time. Let's just, before we get to the U.S. Open, let's just talk about the Great Wall of Dinah for a second. Um, look, Miriam Lee deserves that title. She went out there and she had three chip-ins, including one for birdie on 16 that'll be forgotten about. And everybody will focus on the purposeful bounce off the wall because she was in between clubs. And, you know, she chips in for eagle remarkably to snub Nellie Corda uh, and possibly Brooke Henderson of a title. Um, but it is interesting that we've now seen some of these events. First, the Rocket Mortgage in Detroit did it, and then the BMW Championship did it, and then the ANA Inspiration did it to where they are building out some infrastructure to at least give it a better television feel. But this one, to me, was too close for my life, and I would have preferred that wall be on the other side of the water. Now, yes, it would have been an automatic layup, but if so, then learn how to hit it higher coming into the green, I guess. I I, I don't know. I, I, I enjoyed the excitement that the wall brought, but it also was kind of not great looking on TV. Yeah, I, I think it was a, just a bad visual because there, there's some semblance of that protection uh, in normal years with people because they kind of have a semi-floating grandstand behind the 18th hole. And there, that makes some sense, right? Because there's people there. But they extended the wall, and it was just kind of there. And I, I think their excuse is twofold. One, you know, it's a sponsor activation. They want the ANA logo in as many places as possible because they are fronting the money. But two, they also wanted to recreate what normal playing conditions might look like and in a normal version of this tournament there would be a grandstand there to block some shots but not the full uh full width of that that space that it occupied that wall so i think they it kind of made sense but the execution did not um and it just kind of looked weird now they could have probably achieved the same things as the wall by watering the greens more or watering the 18th green more in particular could have saturated it made it really soft more receptive uh, and then they could have taken the sponsor activation either moved it left of the green um which i think that would have been reasonable kind of create a little peninsula so to speak or uh they could i mean they could have come up with some other options but in the end Every player in the field knew that wall was there, and every player in the field knew they could use it to their advantage. And for as grotesque as it might look, it's fair because everyone made, had it available to them. So, yeah, would it have been better if Miriam Lee had just been able to chip in from a little bit farther away at the ball stop? Yeah. Should Brooke Henderson's ball probably have gone in the drink because it was coming in that hot? Yeah. 
and Nelly Corda, then you could say, was probably the the champion. But that's just the way that it is. That those are the conditions that are available. If someone hits a ball on the 17th hole at St. Andrews on the old course and it bounces off the road hole wall and works out perfectly, there's no complaining because that wall's been there forever. And, again, it may not be natural and it may not have been there a while, but it's available to everybody just the same. Yeah. It's, um, it's, everybody knew it and it was the same for everybody. Um, and, and congrats to Miriam Lee, who wins for the first time in, in uh, three and a half years uh, and did it in dramatic fashion, whether you like the wall or do not like the wall. Uh, one thing the players may not like this week is the rough at Wingfoot. Um, neither you or I are there, but looking at these images that have come out from both media that have gotten to the golf course and players who have gotten there... Um, it sure looks like a U.S. Open. Now, my question is, are they going to top it off at some point and give it a cut? Uh, especially if the remnants of Hurricane Sally come through here like like it might, depending on the track later in the week, Thursday night and the Friday. Um, that, I think, is an open question. But for, for the looks that I see of it, uh, it's going to put a premium on hitting it in the fairway. I think that the graduation levels are to a point that it won't just be fairway good, rough, chip out, because that's not the golf that at least I personally like to see. But it seems like the USGA wants to make these guys think. And I don't know, and I'm going to curse here, but I don't know if you can fuck up Wingfoot. And maybe you can, because... They fucked up Oakmont and on that one green, and they fucked up Shinnecock, and, and people said these golf courses are just fine as is. Um, Wingfoot West is a tough golf course for anybody. Yes, they've grown the rough up. I just hope that they leave it there and not make it too extreme and make it um, and not make the greens ridiculous and give us a championship where it's not just eight over pars your winner. And bogeys become good. I would like to see some birdies sprinkled in with pars. Where do you sit right now as you look at what's coming out of Wingfoot so far and, and what you hope the USGA does this week? Well, I expect them to do a little haircut here before we get to Thursday. Um, they typically give it one more cut, you know, one more substantial cut in terms of the rough. So I'm not expecting foot long grass all over the place all week and I think that people got spooked into that about uh, Shinnecock a couple of years ago and then they kind of nudged it down a little bit but it was still pretty nasty I mean it doesn't take but three and a half inches of rough to be nasty especially the kind of thickness you see at Wingfoot so I think they'll trim it down a little bit it's still going to be really hard even with the fairways at the, the typical width that the membership sees it what it sounds like the USGA has been planning to do. The greens are obviously very difficult to hold. Uh, they're very quick. They are. This is a, a traditional U.S. Open course. You're going to hear that a lot this week. And so the, the setup kind of requires a, you know, the Tom Meeks era setup. So 
there's going to be some hacking out. There's going to be a fair amount of just going sideways. You're trying to advance it with a wedge. There's going to be balls left in the rough. Um, hopefully there won't be many balls that are lost in the rough, but that's one thing to consider that without fans and probably as many volunteers, balls might get lost because of the rough. So the other thing to consider is that without fans and galleries, the big miss, the really big miss, isn't a good thing because they're not yeah. trampled down the grass. So if you miss big, you pay big probably. Um, it'll be... I, I mean, the course is rated at, what, 77.6 on a par 70 to 7,500 yards. So the truth is you expect 75 to be a good score. That's scary. That's pretty crazy. I mean, a par yeah, 75 yeah. every day, how many guys do you think are going to get the par or better? One, two? I think, even, I think an over par score wins this week based on – all the kind of stuff that they're uh, they're telling us. Okay, a couple things there. Number one, I totally agree with you about the big miss, and I actually think it, here's my theory on this because I've seen some of the videos that have come out. Right now, for the folks out there who don't know, right now there are more media out there than have been at PGA Tour events. Um, it's not the full allotment of media that a U.S. Open would normally have, but there are more media than your run-of-the-mill PGA Tour event. Um, but there's also a lot of support staff out there walking right now, whether it's your plus one or two in the bubble, your coach, your instructor, your physio, whatever the case may be. And I've seen some of these videos come out, Luke, that have shown balls that were dropped in what looked like already trampled grass. So what you're getting is instead of thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people tramping down the grass to where the big miss is advantageous. Now you're getting a situation where the rough has been um, adjusted one way or another by those who have walked over it and now actually could curl a ball underneath some grass instead of just falling straight up and down. That I think actually could be more problematic because there's just that right number of people out there that, that that could cause a problem, number one. Number two, I am of the belief that over par will win. I absolutely believe over par will win. But I wonder, and this is assuming that the rain Thursday night and the Friday is not very significant, which as of right now is not supposed to be as we record this midday Monday. Um, as, as I look at this, and when you look at over par likely winning, when you look at what the slope and the course rating is, when you look at what you're eyeing in terms of visuals for TV, I would hope that we get more BMW Championship-esque Sunday where you can make some birdies compared to some of these Opens of the past where, you know, one, one birdie an hour would see like an absolute shocker, where do you stand personally right now when it comes to what you want, what you want to see on Sunday? Because we've seen in some of these majors, it's really tough the first couple of days, and then they make it really fun on Sunday with some birdie opportunities sprinkled in. Do you think it'll be hard all four days and getting harder as the week goes on? I think the USGA's cadence typically is they like to make Thursday pretty playable. 
then Friday's hard, Saturday's really hard, and then Sunday, after all the tears are shed, they make it a little easier. Or, like a couple years ago at Shinnecock, almost too far the other way. So I, I expect that this week. I expect someone to post maybe a 68 or something like that on Thursday, and, oh, it's not so bad. And then Friday, they jam you with some harder pins, and then Saturday, it's so burnt out or... or I mean, it, and it could, again, if Sally comes, there, there's nature that you're just not going to be able to, to stop, right? But if, if it doesn't, by Saturday, they're going to make the pins tough, and it's going to be more burnt out and dry. Not burnt out, dry, because it's not summer, but dry. Um, and it's going to be brutal, and everyone's going to complain, and there's going to be four guys left standing, and then on Sunday, they'll dial it back a little bit. They'll make a 66 possible. And if someone shoots it, they'll backdoor into the top ten, if not win. And that's just kind of how it works. Yeah. I'm uh, t- uh, talking to Ryan Ballinger here on Teeing It Up. Uh, backdoor top ten off of 66 would be rather nice um, for somebody. And my guess as to who that is has become the best backdoor top tenner of this generation. That is Rory McIlroy. Um, but that's a discussion for another day. Um, it was interesting seeing Tiger and Bryson, who are very good friends, go out for a practice round yesterday. Uh, talk about the guy who loves to bunt it versus the guy who loves to just smack it as, as far out there um, as possible. Bryson has not had the best of runs here over the last month, month and a half, didn't have a really good FedEx Cup playoffs um, and has not shown the form that he showed in Detroit um, since. This would seem like the ultimate golf course where he's got a year back um, some and try to figure out a way, whether it's with three woods or something else, to get it around. Um, Where's your head at on... Bryson, because I, I think when everybody thinks thick rough, it's like, okay, they tiger-proofed Augusta. Now this is the USGA Bryson-proofing a golf course, and we're going to see. Obviously, that's not the case, but what do you think Bryson's um, reality is going to look like this week? Uh, I mean, I think you got a bang driver. I mean, it's a 7,500-yard golf course, and for most players... You can miss the fairway just the same with three wood or a, or a hybrid as you can with a driver. And if that's the case, then it's not like the rough is graduated from tee to green or green to tee, I should say. So I think you got to hit driver. You've you got to try to put it in play as long as you can because if you miss and you try to go short, not only you have a long way in, you have no chance. Now you're definitely hitting a longer shot for your next one after the hack out that's possible. So I, I think you put driver into play as often as you can on a 7,500-yard golf course and see where it leaves you. And again, if you're not putting the ball in the fairway this week, you probably don't have a chance anyhow. You've probably got to hit 60%, 65% of your fairways to have a chance. And it, that goes for bombers. That goes especially for shorter hitters. But... You got to there's you got to put the ball in play. I mean, you just got to put the ball in play as long as you possibly can. Otherwise, you're going home. Where is your dividing line this week between Xander, Cantlay, 
Morikawa, that kind of guy who can get it out there but is not super long, versus Rory, JT, DJ, these guys who just hit it a mile. Where is your dividing line? Do you think that that it, it, any of those can win, or does it does it favor, or does it it slide towards one or the other in in your mind? Because in, in my mind, from the beginning, as soon as I heard from Dan Hicks that the rough was up when when he was on the conference call um, uh, last week. Uh, promoting this, and I, and, I, and I heard that about the rough. I'm like, okay, this is definitely another Xander, Morikawa, Cantlay, any of those kind of guys, you know, medium long range um, hitters. Where's your head at in terms of who does this set up favor if you need that length for a 7,500 yard golf course? I don't think that you necessarily need it to win, but it doesn't hurt, right? I mean, if you're going to tell me that Rory McIlroy and Colin Morikawa are going to hit it what they normally hit it, but they both hit the, the fairways the same amount of time or the same percentage of the time, I'm going to take Rory because he's going to have shorter irons into every hole. So I, I think that matters, but we know that's not how it really works. So I think any type can really win. If you look at the BMW Championship at Olympia Fields, you had mostly long hitters or longer hitters in contention, but you didn't have exclusively long hitters. And if you look at Memorial, which is kind of the other tough setup, you had a long hitter win in, in John Rahm, but you also had a short knocker. You know, and Ryan Palmer is part of it. So it can be done, but the, the fine line is much finer for the shorter player than for the longer player. Because if there are enough shortish holes out there at wing foot that I think you can you can make up a little ground and also if you get yourself into the rough off the tee on the par fives, if you're a longer hitter you can still leave yourself maybe a decent third shot in even if you have to hack it out compared to some of the shorter hitters. So again I think the advantages with the longer hitter, I think that's always how it is, but that doesn't mean it's impossible for someone who bangs it 295 off the tee to keep up. Um, Tommy Fleetwood shot a final round 64 yesterday in Portugal um, and finished tie for third, 68-71, 68-64. He said he wanted to go there uh, because he was not happy with the way his game was and he wanted reps and, and because of the quarantine rules, he couldn't get to the Safeway and then get to New York. He would have had a quarantine for, for some time in, in, in California uh, coming from um, Europe. And for those who don't know, uh, Governor Cuomo has put in a a special exemption for essential people, which includes athletes, so that these events can take place and that New York can see the economic impact that comes from it with with tons of restrictions. Um, and we've already seen two people, Sam uh, Sam Horsfield, who had a great run through the European UK series, uh, test positive, and Scotty Scheffler has also tested positive, which is a damn shame because I thought he had a great shot this week uh, with the way he had been playing. Let's hope that both of them stay asymptomatic and get back uh, to playing um, soon. 
But Tommy Fleetwood, his name always seems to pop up on these leaderboards when it comes to a major championship. Ryan, is this his time? Is this is this his week? Well, I didn't have him in my original top ten. I had Scotty Scheffler in my top ten. And <laughs> as soon as he pulled out, I made Tommy Fleetwood my number ten. Um he has a tremendous record in the U.S. Open. I mean, he's been a part of the conversation, too, for the last three years, really. And I expect him to do so again. I mean, it all boils down to, to putting for him. He's really, I mean, phenomenal tee to green. If he just puts the ball in the hole with the, the putter more often um, you know, from range, then he's going to win. He's just that good. I think that's the same thing with Rory McIlroy. If he, put, if he hits fairways and greens, he's really hard to beat. But if he thinks that putting brings him back to the field. So I don't think you can discount putting this week. I think you almost have to go the other way. With I think you have to value putting this week because these greens are vexing. They're quick. Um, you have to play defensively on a lot of putts. And you just can't go for broke, I don't think. But then again, you had Fleetwood, who was basically out of it at Shinnecock a couple years ago, went for broke shot 63 and got himself in position. So um, go back to that that backdoor thing. You never know what can happen on a Sunday when you've got nothing to lose. Um, but that said, I, I like Tommy Fleetwood's chances. I think the 64 has to be good for the soul a little bit. And hopefully comes over here and feels like he can rekindle some of what he's done in the Open the last couple of years. Um, talking to Ryan Ballinger here on Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. Uh, that brings me, talking about the BMW Championship, that brings me to Tiger. And this is my Tiger theory. I have no idea how he's going to play this week. Absolutely none. But for all the people who were upset about his putting at Olympia Fields, I said, no, 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 no. Don't think about putting. And I had Mark Rothman on the podcast last week, and he said, no, you got to worry about it. This is this is a problem. And, and Mark walked part of all four days with Tiger. But here's my Tiger theory. He misses Eastlake. So he plays two events in the same grass, bent and, and rye, that this week is. He didn't have to make the one-week adjustment to Bermuda. He then goes and has a horrendous week around the greens. His bunker play wasn't good. His chipping and pitching wasn't good. So suddenly he has the ability to make an adjustment at home with his lasting memory being that grass, which I think is a huge advantage, number one. Number two, for the people who are upset about his iron play, Suddenly, his proximity, which was bad at the Northern Trust, which was not good enough at Olympia Fields, becomes an asset. It's okay if you are way far away, if your lag putting's better. And I trust that Tiger worked on his lag putting last week. So I actually come in with this belief that Tiger went home, knows exactly what he needs to work on for this week, and is actually in better shape because of it. By missing Eastlake. Am I crazy or am I onto something? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, Tiger's been a bad putter for three or four years, right? Like, and actually longer than that. It's been getting progressively worse since like 2012. 
So I think we have to accept he is not a good putter. He's not as good at lag putting as he once was, and he's definitely not as good of a short putter as he once was. He doesn't bang him in with authority like he once did. He gets tentative as a mode of impact. He kind of flinches sometimes and doesn't get through with the same tempo that he used to. Go up one Sunday or not. I don't know. I really don't. Um, that's, That's assuming we get there, right? He could put the ball in play just as long as pretty much anybody that, uh, you know, outside of those maybe four big bombers, uh, you know, like a Finau, DJ, Tony, or um, Rory McIlroy, John Rahm, those kinds of guys, Bryson, you know. But he can get out there far enough, and he can find the fairway often enough, and he can hit iron shots well enough. But the putt's got to fall. And if he doesn't see him go in, he's going to – it's like the speed theory. You, you, if you if you play well in most facets of the game, but something just isn't working, you press the stuff that's working well to try to get the most out of that to make up for the thing that's not working. But it's really hard to press on putting because what are you going to press on? Try to hit irons closer? Well, you can't do that in this tournament. That's just not the way that it works at Wayne Foot. So... He's got to stick with his game plan. He can't get frustrated when things don't work well. The good news for him is pars are tremendous scores. So if he can go at it that way and think, all i got to do is make 72 bars instead of worrying about birdies like he did at, uh, at Harding Park, then I think that works more for his style of play. It works more for his superior course management. It works better for the skills that he has because he doesn't have to make bombs for birdies and eagles he's just got to get it close and two putt for pars and that's going to keep him where he needs to be so I don't know if missing Eastlake is a blessing or, or not but I think that he knows what his problem is and I think he's known it for a while now he's just got to kind of live with pars being a good thing yeah it seems like he's missing one or two putts around that are just not he used to miss, but he's also not hitting his chips and pitches as well as he used to to give himself easier putts for par. And some of those back-in-the-stance chips he had at Olympia Fields uh, just were not very good. So uh, he's got to fix that uh, to be ready for Eastlake. Uh, Final specific player question before I get on to something else. DJ has all the momentum in the world. And then, by no fault of his own, um, there's a week off before the U.S. Open. And and part of me thinks that he would have loved to have been able to just roll with it and roll right into the U.S. Open, as tired as he may have been because of how well he was playing in the playoffs, going 1-2-1. And the question, Ryan, becomes on a golf course now where accuracy is really premium, and we saw the swing get away from him for one day, where he only hit two fairways at the Tour Championship. Is this the week that finally those misses will catch up with him? And and is he less of a... Basically, he was hot. Now he cools down for a week. Now he has to heat back up. And is his propensity to still having that one off day going to be too costly to where at Eastlake it was manageable here. It could be a real detriment and ultimately put him out of the golf tournament. 
I'm sorry, I totally lost you there for like the first couple seconds of your question, so you might want to edit this part out, but who, who, did, you, who did you say? <laughs> well, it could be a lot of players, but I was specifically referring to Dustin Johnson. Who? Uh, Dustin yeah. Johnson. One more time. Dustin Johnson. Okay, good. You didn't break up in the first part. Um, okay, now here we go. <laughs> I mean, I, I, DJ's been the best golfer in the world for about a month, right? I mean, he let's throw out the 80, 80, 78 stretch. Everything since then has been phenomenal. He's just been that good. Uh, he did let it go a little bit at Harding Park. Probably could have won that day, but Colin Morikawa was the better player, and that's just the way it is. Um, DJ has also led or co-led, I believe, eight rounds in U.S. Open history, which is up there with pretty much any player ever. I think the record's 12. Um so he knows how to play this championship. He knows what he's got to do. And I, I think that his shrug it off kind of attitude works tremendously well for this tournament because he, he knows he has the talent to overcome a double on the card here and there. And he also knows how to avoid them when he needs to. I, I think, yeah, he's got misses. I mean, everyone, every long-hitting player. There are very few players who hit it long and straight all the time. Rory McIlroy isn't even immune to that, but he's probably the straightest of the Bombers. So DJ is going to have times where he's going to have to figure out how to make a, a 3, 4, or 5 after an awful tee shot. More often than not, it's going to be on a 4, because he's going to find a way to get it down there on a 5, on a 3. There's really not a whole lot he can do if you had a poor tee shot. The, the par 3s are set up to to brutalize you if you, you screw up. Um, and he's just got to be able to roll with it. But he has the, the overwhelming confidence of a bunch of different things working for him. One, that he's the best player on the planet right now. Two, just won the FedEx Cup. Three, he overcame whatever the hell was going on with him at Memorial and 3M. Four, he's won this championship before under very strange circumstances. So, And it doesn't seem to bother him whatsoever that there's no people there which I think it does bother some of the better players yep. because they're used to having galleries. So he's got a lot of things going for him. I mean, there's a reason he's 8-1 to one to win. Uh, do I think he's going to win? I'm not convinced of that, but I, I feel like he's got to be in the, the final group of contenders we think about coming into Sunday. If he's not, I think everyone's going to be really surprised. Can I leave that in? Because I just think that whole sequence is hilarious and people need to laugh. Sure, man. I don't care. <laughs> cool. We're going to leave that in, folks. Just... And every time he kept saying, those and those, like, <laughs> in one part we go, just, just. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> so, hey, that's how it works. This is what we go through, folks. This is this is what we go through. Ryan Ballinger with us from Golf News Net. Um we're going to uh, move off this for a second to talk about um, something else here, which is the upcoming West Coast Swing. I am pumped for this. Um, we're going to go to TPC Summerlin, which I believe is underrated as a fun golf course in the PGA Tour. Then we're going to go to Shadow Creek. And then we're going to go to Shearwood. 
This is going to be a really fun stretch for a lot of people who love golf in October, gearing up for Augusta. Kudos to the PGA Tour for pulling this off. Um, and, and to Zozo and to CJ Group for being okay with this adjustment. I am so pumped for it. Um, I am more pumped to hear in celebration of man this week, don't get me wrong, but I am pumped for what's coming our way next month. It'll be good. I mean, I, I appreciate the Asian Swing events because the PGA Tour wants to make a foray into an important part of the golf world. And they want to make a, that commitment with a three-week stretch. It used to be two, now three. Who knows if they could be four. But with the realities of COVID, them bringing it here to the United States for two of the events that are still on the schedule, you know, to have Shadow Creek, I think it's a great analog for what the Nine Bridges Club is, which is supposed to be kind of exclusive ballers club uh, that isn't necessarily an architectural masterpiece, so there's nothing wrong with it, but it's, it's a name. You know, uh, they picked the right course for that. And I think it's pretty cool MGM let that happen. Um, and then to have Sherwood, you know, Zozo is a, is a fairly uh, tight golf course. So they brought it to a fairly tight golf course in Sherwood. Obviously, Tiger liked the first year. Tiger loves Sherwood. All good things. And also, it's a nice opportunity for Sherwood because of losing the QQQ championship. They're, they're part of the... Charles Schwab Cup playoffs uh, for the PGA Tour champions. So that's nice for them. And hopefully, with some abatement in the, the wildfires in California, that, that could be a good tournament. And again, for everybody here watching that in the United States, we're going to get to watch that in prime time. You know, some of the best players in the world playing in the fall. Usually these events, yeah, they're great players, but the, the event finishes at 2 a.m. or 5 a.m. or whatever. And you don't really get to watch it. So that's good news for American PGA Tour fans, North American PGA Tour fans. And it should work out pretty well. And I think also, uh, just to add one more thing onto that, um, because of the November Masters, these fields are going to be really good. And it's not just the moving of these events, but it's the promise of really high-quality fields. And I think... Some people may not realize that, but you're going to see fields this fall that are going to be absurdly good. And not just because of guaranteed FedEx Cup points or massive purses, but also because there's that thing called a green jacket and a trip down Magnolia Lane uh, coming uh, mid-November on ESPN and CBS to look forward to. Um, Ryan Ballinger with us. We're getting to the end of our radio program where I ask you uh, for your picks, uh, I will start with the person that has no chance of winning. And, and for me, that person is Phil Mickelson. He hit it all over the map last week. You cannot do that this week. He was able to get away with it at Safeway. Silverado wants accuracy, but you don't have to have it. Um this week, you do need it. Phil, sorry, no Cinderella story. Yeah, Phil doesn't. No. no and if you put 45, who was the person who put like $45,000 on him at 75 to 1 or something like that? Yes, some absurd it, person. They could have lit that money on fire. Um, they effectively did. They, they could have done so much more with that money. Um I mean, Phil can always surprise. You never know. And I, I 
that's the caveat with everybody, right? But you never know. But, um, man, I'd be shocked if you have a piece of this come Sunday. Um, who else in your mind, uh, is there a name that pops out that has no chance? Um, um, this Chez, um, I mean, I think if you're a short hitter, if you're, if you're struggling to hit a 290, I, I know we talked about earlier, you can, you can contend here, but you've got to play pretty much a perfect ball game to give yourself a chance. Um, I just think it, I think if you're over the age of 35, you're gonna have a really hard time winning this tournament. Um, well, so basically, you know, Brendan Todd. Um, yeah, I mean Brendan Todd's gonna struggle just because it's oh, man. I mean for a guy that occasionally worries about getting off the tee. I mean obviously he's not quite as far down as he was once, but that creeps in on you awfully quickly, and you know the mistake. And I I think if you're not feeling confident on the tee. You're more likely to make the mistake to put you in a, in a difficult position where you got to hack out. And you're struggling to make pars, and they rack up on you, and it, it's just really hard to unravel. Yeah, um, that is that's I am right there with you on that. Um, I, I just think that anybody who is either on the short side or on the older side is going to have a lot of problems this week, and. I, I hate that it's going to be that way, but that's just the way the setup looks, and it's going to be um, one of those things and one of those weeks where you're going to really have to hit it well because um, if not, you're going to be going home on Friday. Um, so my pick to win is Xander Shoffley, and my sleeper is Max Homa. Who do you have in those two departments to close out this podcast, Ryan? Well, I like John Rahm to win. Um, if I had to pick three, it's DJ Rahm and Xander. And then I think my sleeper is Will Zalatoris. Uh, he's been unbelievable on the Corn Ferry Tour. He's pretty much in every tournament he competes in this year. He's won one. Um, He's been the best player on that tour for months now, in my opinion. He's won 25-1. to 1. I think he's getting completely overlooked for a lot of reasons. I think he has a chance here. That is a fascinating pick. And, and, and for those who are wondering why is a Corn Ferry Tour player in this event when qualifying was canceled, the USGA tried to replicate the field as best they could, and thus they awarded, what was it, top four? Five, I believe it was off the off the uh, money list at a, after the Corn Ferry Tour Championship into that event, um, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, top five off the regular season points list and top five off of the points earned in what would have been the Corn Ferry Tour final. So uh, Will got in, I believe, on the second list, not the first list. And you look at the points list right now. Will Zalatoris has a almost. 400 point lead on Davis Riley, um, who is one win away from earning the battlefield promotion to the PGA Tour. Um, so, just to give folks an idea, he's got a huge lead in their points race. Um, and kudos to the USGA for pulling that off. I really like that pick this week. I, I think that's somebody who, look, you've got to go low on that tour, but. You know, for some of these golf courses, and they've been playing in altitude, and they've been all over the place. You've got to hit it in the fairway and calculate your yardage as well, and plot your way around. I think that's a good 
match. I think that's a good setup for um, somebody to sleep, uh, to truly be a sleeper and sneak in there. I like that pick a lot. It's 125 to 1, at least the last I looked. Um, So you can help. Yeah, there's a lot of value there. That seems fair for a guy you don't really see on TV, and you're not going to get a whole lot of book action on him. And to be truthful, if he won this thing, it'd be an incredible upset. But um, but he does have the talent of a guy who's 60 to 1, so I think it's a good value. Yeah, uh, great indeed. And by, and by the way, just huge, huge congrats to Stuart Sink. Um, what a win that was last night at 47 years old. Hadn't won since he won the 09 Open championship to have his son on the bag with him um to have lisa his wife healthy and cancer free just what an amazing story that is and i feel bad for harry higgs who's going to be great for golf when he gets on uh in in into more of these marquee events and gets into more final groups and eventually wins on tour but what an awesome moment last night at the safeway for uh stewart sink yeah really cool i mean none there you don't normally get a lot of your peers tweeting and sharing messages of support and congratulations to you in quite quite the way that happened for Stuart Sink last night. Um, he and his family have been through a lot the last few years, and now this gets him at 47 effectively in the bridge to the PGA Tour champions, where I think he's going to mop up. I am so, I am with you um, totally on that. Um, he had been playing out of, I believe, the 126 to 150 category. And now he essentially has a three-year exemption and gets a golden ticket into the PGA Tour champions. It's it's a beautiful story. Yeah, you can't ask for a whole lot more at that stage of your life to win one more time on the big tour. And maybe win another time, but that he's never going to forget what happened yesterday and uh, neither will his son neither will his wife it's pretty cool and I also think that that 9 Open had so much because of the Tom Watson factor just it, it was I, I think he never got the due that he deserved for that and now he's won again on the PGA Tour and maybe now he'll get some of the credit he was due back then because the, 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 the story that whole day was Tom Watson and him ultimately blowing the title and losing the playoff to sink. Um, and I don't think Stewart was really able to enjoy that as much as he would have liked um, just because of the way it played out. So hopefully he gets the recognition here because he absolutely deserves it. Um, Ryan Ballinger, thank you as always for joining us here on Teeing It Up. And uh, I'm excited to get this week started and get the U.S. Open teed off. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. We will see Ryan in a couple weeks before some other big event. I'm not sure what, but we'll figure out something to do, and then we'll go down Magnolia Lane. And um, I will see all of you next time on Teeing It Up. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe, rate, review. Golf News Net, Ryan Ballinger, at Ryan Ballinger, at Jay Schill. Thanks, everybody. Take care.